Let's uh, begin by praying to the Lord, shall we? Father, we do want to thank you that it's wonderfully true. The day is coming when we are going to see the King, and we're going to meet him face to face, and there's going to be a glorious wedding day. It's going to be our wedding day, and we will be married to the one who loves us, the one who gave himself for us, and we will be his bride. And Father, I just want to thank you that in these days you're adorning us as a bride fit for the bridegroom. I want to thank you for the wonderful thoughts you have about us. Father, the tragedy is that we don't have thoughts about one another like you have about us. You think wonderful things of us, and we think only second-rate things sometimes about one another. I do ask, Father, in Jesus' name, you will drive us to our knees in repentance, that we might indeed see, Lord, that each one of us is precious in your sight. Each one of us is beloved. Each one of us has the mark of God's love on us and is not to be despised. Oh, Father, I just worship you, and I thank you for the things that we study together. We thank you that prophecy means we can have peace in all circumstances, and it means that we know the way things are going. I just want to pray for our government, Lord, in Jesus' name, and for the opposition parties. Father, we ask you will give them a spirit of wisdom to rule us. Father, we lift up our Queen before you in Jesus' name. Father, she has found herself part of an international scene of politics, which perhaps she would rather not be part of. And yet, Father, she bears it so willingly. We ask you to bless her. We ask you to bless the Prime Minister. We ask you to bless all of her ministers. Give her great wisdom. We ask you to bless the members of the opposition, that they might indeed know what it is to be effective in their opposition. Father, we know these things that we study tonight are coming upon us. But we want to thank you that your government is established even now in your church. And Father, we submit to you as our great sovereign Lord, and we ask for your blessing upon us now and always, Lord, but that especially tonight, the words that I say, and Father, the meditations of all of our hearts, are going to find acceptance with you, Lord. Father, just send your Holy Spirit and anoint and bless us. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God. We are now in the position, and it's a very good position to be in, where we can start studying the period that we call the tribulation. You remember that in the last two studies, we've been doing background to the tribulation. Uh, two studies ago, I talked about the philosophy behind the tribulation in a talk entitled The Monster Stirs, and we began to see the push uh, that Satan has established, as far as the world is concerned, which will come to a climax in this period called the Tribulation. And as we studied those things, do you remember what a revelation it was about our present society? It was quite an amazing thing to see that already we can identify what is Satan's purpose for this world, even by looking at the trends in our own society. And last time, we then dealt with the timing in the book of Revelation, and I talked about seals and trumpets and vials, and we began to understand that some parts of Revelation were chronological, and other parts were to provide detail for the whole period of the tribulation. Now, today, we're going to deal with two passages specifically in the book of Revelation, which are actually uh, passages which give us details as far as the tribulation is concerned. And we will be concerned mainly today with the political structure that will be found in the days we call the tribulation. Can I give you a warning before we begin? The pattern that we see in the tribulation is so vastly different 
from the pattern that we see today that some people who study it are absolutely amazed that such things are going to come to pass. Tonight, we're not going to describe how our present situation changes to become that of the tribulation. I'll be dealing with that in a few studies' time when we deal with does Russia have a future. We'll be talking about the communist bloc and exactly what God has got up his sleeve as far as they are concerned. Tonight, we're going to see things as they are in the tribulation. Now, the two chapters we'll be in a lot tonight are Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, but because these chapters have a lot of picture language in them, I feel it's right to go to a passage which will be very largely a passage that you already know and which is actually a bit of review as far as we're concerned. Do you remember that when we talked about interpreting the Bible, we said that the Bible must be taken as it stands? Right? If it says something, that's exactly what it means. It's got to be taken literally or plainly or normally. But I said that there were two exceptions to that. One, where idioms were used in the Bible, and two, where obvious picture language is used. But I do mean obvious picture language is used. So, we have got to review again, how do we deal with picture language? You remember the picture language comes into literature in the Bible that we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. That is literature which deals with the end times. Sometimes God, um, to save Daniel and the other people, because their minds would have absolutely blown, you know, if he had shown them the things in detail, very often to save their mentality, he presented things simply to them using picture language. Let's turn, to begin with tonight, to Daniel and chapter 7, which is a passage we've seen before and I've dealt with in detail on my tape, The Four Monsters of Daniel. But let's review and it will get us back into the thinking of dealing with picture language and will help us. So, Daniel, chapter 7. Now, when we deal with the chapter tonight, it's best to put a bit of paper in or something because we'll be darting between... Daniel 7, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17. So, Daniel 7, and you'll remember in this passage, Daniel has had a nightmare, right? Or rather, a very, very disturbing dream indeed. And in this passage, as he was lying on his bed, four monsters appeared to him. And God was using these monsters to show the history of the world that was going to unfold in the time of, of Daniel and beyond. He saw these four monsters. Let's just have a look at them. In verse 4, here are the four. The first was like a lion. So number one is a lion, and this lion had eagle's wings on its backs, and you remember they were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on its feet as a man. Verse 5 gives us the second beast, the second beast, of course, was a bear, and not just any bear, but a bear which was lopsided. It's almost as if it had a limp, and one shoulder was high in the air, and the other was low in the air, you see, and it went limping along like that, and we also read in that verse that it had three bones sticking out of its mouth. In other words, it was in the middle of dinner. Um, number six, verse six, gives us the third creature, which was a leopard, and not just an ordinary leopard, a leopard which 
ended up having four heads. All right? I mean, it's enough to give anyone uh, a little bit of a jolt in the middle of the night. And the fourth one, then, was just called... He couldn't describe it, so he just called it a monster. So there you've got them. And the monster, in verse 7... Is given after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. And we read later on, it also had bronze nails, right? And it stamped and it devoured. He was an awful beast. Now, we ask the question, what did these four represent? Now, many people, when they read the Bible, they get into a terrible tizwas. Oh dear, what are these talking about? You will normally find in the Bible there's a good, kind angel waiting on the sidelines, ready to tell you what they're all about. You don't have to guess. And if you go across to verse 17, you'll see what uh, the angel, the interpreting angel, actually said to him. Verse 17, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Four kings, and the word kings also means kingdoms. And in the talk on the, the four monsters of Daniel, we saw what these kingdoms were. The lion was equal, of course, to Babylon. This is all by way of review. Babylon, and we showed how the lion with the eagle's wings represented Babylon. And Daniel was living in Babylon. The next one was the bear, and that represented the kingdom we call Medo-Persia. You remember there were two tribes, the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were stronger than the Medes, and that's why the bear was lopsided. You see, the Medes were the weaker side, the Persians were the stronger side, and when they came into prominence, three nations were conquered by them. They're the three bones sticking out of its mouth. You should all know this absolutely backwards, right? And forwards as well, I hope. Uh, number three was the leopard of great speed, and that was the kingdom of Greece under Alexander. And then we saw that the fourth monster was equal... To Rome. Now, so far, so good. But if you remember when we talked on this, I chickened out at the last moment when we were dealing with the fourth monster. Let me read it through, and let me just show you why we actually chickened out. Verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all beasts that were before it. And I think I stopped right there. And when we looked at Rome, that was exactly the picture that Rome presented to us. A mighty empire against which nothing could stand. They were well organized, their army was tremendous, they had a tremendous uh, communication system, backup and all the other things that were necessary, and whichever nation they took on, more or less, uh, went down under them. Sometimes it took a few years longer to conquer some, but generally they conquered everyone they came in contact with. But we stop there because after that comes a description of Rome which caused us some problems. This is the very last part of verse 7 and verse 8. Let's just read it together. And it had ten horns. Here is the monster. It's got one head, and on the head are ten horns. I can't be bothered to count tonight, but... Uh, oh, well, I will. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Perfect. There we are. You get second, second nature, you see. And it's on this one head, there are ten horns. And then, in verse 8, we read on, And I considered the horns... And behold, there came up among them another little horn. 
There's little horn in there. Another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And we stop there for a very special purpose. We see exactly why we stopped at that point when we come to the interpreting angel. Uh, Daniel wonders about this fourth beast. He'd never seen anything like it. So he, he asked the, the angel, exactly what was that fourth beast? And the angel tells him, go across to verse 23, and here you'll see the description of the fourth beast. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. And when you count it up, that means it's Rome. Which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, Shall, that means different from all kingdoms that have gone before. It was much greater, it was much stronger, had a different type of law altogether. And shall devour the whole earth and tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns, you don't have to guess, the ten horns are out, sorry, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. In other words, there will be a time when there will be ten kings over Rome. Ten kings, co-equal, reigning at the same time. And then it goes on, and another shall rise after them. Another king comes up, the eleventh, and he shall be diverse from the first. He's going to be different. And he will subdue three of the kings. In other words, he fights with three of these ten kings, and he destroys three of the kings. All right? Now, our problem was this, that when we sift through Roman history, there is no part of Roman history that we know about in which there were ten kings and an eleventh which came up and fought against three and destroyed three. And so, as soon as we go to history, we find here a passage which does not coincide with any history we know in the past. And that's why I left it on one side for a moment. By the way, let's read on about the description of this 11th king. It might start ringing a bell in your head. We dealt with a man called the man of sin. And we told about how he was exalted. And we read the passage, remember, in 2 Thessalonians and studied it. Let's read about this uh, man who comes up, this 11th king. Verse 25, he shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, isn't that amazing? In other words, there's going to be persecution of believers and think to change times and laws. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. What does this mean, think to change times and laws? That is the way the Bible explains anti-Semitism. In other words, he is going to attack the Jews. The Jews work under a, a calendar which has distinct days and distinct times attached to it. They have a day on which they have the Passover, a day on which they have Purim, a day on which they have the Feast of Tabernacles, and so on. And as soon as this 11th king comes up, he wants to stop the Jews being Jewish. So he tries to stop their religious calendar. And then it says, and to change the laws. These are the laws of God that they function under. And so here, not only is he against believers, he is specifically against the Jewish nation. He shall think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand. Isn't that amazing? He is going to have domination over believers and over the Jews for how long? A time and times and the dividing of times. 
Now, what's that about? The word time there is just the Babylonian word for a year. So a time is one year. Then it says times, which is plural, and so is two years. And the dividing of times is half a year. The result is we come down to three and a half years. In other words, this man is going to have power and dominion over believers for three and a half years. Now that should be ringing a few bells in your head. You'll remember that in the tribulation, uh, the whole period lasts seven and a half years. Sorry, the whole period lasts seven years, and it's divided into two halves of three and a half each. This eleventh king will have domination for three and a half years. Now, the question for us is, what is this talking about? It's not anything that we understand from the past, so what is it then exactly? And so we went on in our studies to talk about the mystery of the church, and that gave us the clue to this passage. Now, the mystery of the church, do you remember that we saw from Ephesians 3 that the church was never mentioned in the Old Testament? There is not one passage in the Old Testament that mentions the church. It's a completely forgotten, unmentioned part as far as the Old Testament is concerned. Now, what does this mean? It means there's a gap as far as God's timing is concerned in the Old Testament. I like to think of it like this. I imagine it uh, to be, a, and I give a geographical example, a small hill, then a deep valley, and a bigger hill behind, like that. Those of you who've done any mountain walking, you have probably walked up a hill or two hills in that type of arrangement. You have a little hill, then a valley, then you've got a big hill. Now you imagine someone walking up the little hill, right? As he looks ahead, he sees the top of the little hill, and just behind it, he sees the top of the big hill. And to him, as he looks up, they look as if they're all the same mountain. And that's how history appeared in the Old Testament, you see? I remember walking up a Great Gable at one time in the Lake District, you know? And everyone told me, oh, it's a pretty steep climb. You've got to be really careful, you know? Well, I started walking up, and uh, I thought, well, there's Great Gable just ahead. This is easy, you know, an absolute dawdle. What's this about? And I walked up, and I thought, well, I'm almost there. And I stopped and had my lunch, you know, what I thought was uh, approaching the summit. And uh, after I'd eaten my lunch, I couldn't understand why everyone was, uh, you know, panting on. And I walked on a little bit, and all of a sudden I found I hadn't reached Great Gable at all. I walked up Green Gable, which was a little hill just in front of Great Gable. And as I reached the top of Green Gable, I looked down in utter dismay, for there was a whole valley going down again to lake level, and on the other side of the valley, there was Great Gable. Now, what does this mean? In terms of the Bible, very often, a historical event is represented by the small mountain. Then you've got the valley of the church, which the Old Testament people couldn't see, and then history begins again, and it's the top of the big mountain. Now, to them, when they were looking at it, there's the small mountain, there's the big mountain. It looks as if the first bit of history and the second bit of history come absolutely on top of one another. But in fact, there's 2,000-year gap in between them. You see? And we saw, when we talked about the mystery of the church, that there were certain passages in the Bible that told of history up to the time of Christ, and then all of a sudden they jumped the 2,000 years and they went on to the time after the church is removed. We could put it another way. Imagine this line represents the church here, 
The church has a beginning and an end. There's history before the church. There's history after the church. And if you don't mention the church, it looks as if the history after the church follows directly on the history before the church. And that's exactly what happened. And I think in the tape called The Mystery of the Church, I gave lots of examples. Now, do you know that that is the key to this passage here? You see, the Roman Empire, as described in verse 7, was before the time of Christ, as far as God was concerned. And then you have a 2,000-year gap before it starts again. And the ten horns, which are ten kings, represents what will be, as far as the world is concerned, once the church has left the earth. Now, this is what we're going to study tonight, the position we find in the tribulation. Now, if that's not clear, by the end of this evening, it will be clear. So, that's by way of introduction. Let's go now to Revelation and chapter 13, and let's see what Revelation 13 gives us. All right, Revelation 13, of course, tells us about the politics of the tribulation. Revelation and chapter 13... Right, and John now is caused to look upon a scene. Again, I imagine that he's watching a videotape recording of everything that's unfolding. And what does he see? He sees something amazing. He stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast. Now, he's standing on the seashore and looking out to sea. And as we've said in past talks, the sea represents fallen humanity. It represents the instability of humanity. He looks at the sea, and one day it seems to be calm. The very next day, it seems to be rushing in with tremendous force. One day, it's going in this direction. The next day, it's going in that direction, you see? And there's the instability of humanity. And he sees the hue, the sea, the the mass, unstable mass of humanity spread before him. And as he looks, out of this mass of humanity... He sees a beast beginning to rise. Now, some people have imagined this to be a sort of still beast. It was not. It was a swirling, moving beast. Have you ever seen an octopus or pictures of an octopus as it's brought out of the water? It tends to flail its limbs. That's exactly the type of picture that Paul, sorry, that uh, John is seeing at this particular point. This beast is coming out of the ocean of humanity. And look at the description. A beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Not four heads, seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns, ten crowns. And upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. This is something that specifically comes from humanity and which affects humanity, but which is blasphemous as far as God is concerned. It has seven heads, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and it's got ten horns. Now, Daniel tells us that all those horns are upon one of the heads, right? Now, I'm not going to draw them on here because it doesn't identify which. You've got seven heads, and one of these heads has got ten horns on it, and here he's describing, after the event, what he's seen in front of him. Now, actually, what he sees is this. He watches this swirling mass, and he sees this beast, and the heads come up one at a time, and he counts them. A head comes up and swirls around for a bit, and then goes down into the ocean. And he waits for a moment, and another head 
comes up and it's a different head and moves around and then goes down into the ocean. Then another one comes up and he sees all seven. And on one of these heads, there are ten horns. Let me tell you now, this represents the, the climax and the fullness of all that is evil. All of Satan's intentions, as far as this world is concerned, they are brought together here as a climax in the tribulation. People who say glibly, oh yes, the tribulation is going to be awfully bad, and Christians will be in the tribulation, they don't know what the tribulation is going to be like. I've heard people speak as if we're going through the tribulation, they act as if it's just like World War II, you know, and uh, well, it's pretty bad days, but we got through, old folks. It's not going to be like World War II at all. It's going to be the most horrific period of human history that has ever hit the earth. Satan himself will dwell on the earth. Every demon in the heavens is going to be cast down onto the face of this earth. And whether you collect Heinz baked beans till they come out of your bedroom window, they are not going to see you through the tribulation. Absolutely not. No man at all is going to be seen through like that. And this glibness, the way people talk as if they're going through the tribulation. Beloved, let me tell you this. Jesus is coming for his bride first. Oh, you don't send your bride off to Vietnam. Certainly not. You love her and you rescue her out of the coming wrath. This is a picture here of the fullness of evilness. Okay, how do we know that? Verse 2 shows us that. And verse 2 is a direct reference back to Daniel 7. Because the beast, he says, which I saw, was like unto a leopard, and his feet were the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And you see, in Daniel, you had a lion, you had a bear, you had a leopard. This is all of them put together. You think Babylon was bad? Nothing compared to what's coming in the tribulation. You think um, that uh, Greece was bad? Nothing at all compared to what's coming in the tribulation. You think that Rome was bad? I tell you, you haven't seen anything until you see what's coming in the tribulation. An appalling thing. Now, is it possible for us to identify what these seven heads are and what the ten horns are? Well, the seven heads we can now immediately identify. Here is the satanic system, right? The system which originates with Satan coming up at times onto the face of the earth. You can always tell when Satan's moving, there's always anti-Semitism about. And that's the clue. Does the Bible tell us of seven distinct empires uh, that were directly Satanic and which all committed anti-Semitism? The answer, yes, it does. Let's go through these heads. The first head here was the first empire, which was Egypt. Egypt came, and Egypt, as you know, took in the Jews and made them slaves. That's the first one. This was the first time that this beast appeared as far as the earth is concerned. But after a while, Egypt ducked out of the picture. Then the Bible says that the next uh, major empire which appeared was Assyria. And Assyria, one of the most cruel empires the world has ever seen. And someday we'll get on to certain passages like Isaiah 37 and so on, and I'll be dealing with the cruelty of Assyria. After Assyria, we come to our old friends Babylon, after Babylon, Medo-Persia. After Medo-Persia, Greece. After Greece, Rome. Now there you've got six of them, right? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The question is now, what about this seventh one? Does the Bible tell us of a seventh? Well, at the time of Rome, the church came in. 
So whatever the seventh is, it's going to appear after the church, which is this mystery we talked of in the Old Testament. So the question is, what empire rises after the church has gone? Well, we call it the tribulational empire. The seventh head is the empire we call the tribulational empire. Now they are the seven heads of this beast. In other words, here is this tremendously t satanic force and it comes up seven distinct times in human history in the form of empires which are specifically anti-God and specifically anti-Semitic. There they are. The seventh is yet to come. All right, now let's, um, we've got to think about this. Let's go on to verse 3 and let's see if this makes a bit of sense to us. I'll be demonstrating this from Revelation 17 in just a moment. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. Now this amazes John. He is standing there and he sees a head come up, gnashing its teeth, it goes round a bit and then sinks down. This happens a number of times and then all of a sudden there's a change. A head comes up and as he is looking at this head, suddenly it seems to be cut and bruised and damaged and seems to collapse into the sea. It's, it's mortally wounded. And that head vanishes. And John looks at the swirling in the water, and I imagine it's sort of blood red, you know, from all the blood that has flown from this particular head. And he says, I wonder what's going to happen now. And then he tells us what happened. Look what he says. And his deadly wound was healed. He looks, and all of a sudden, another head comes up. And when he looks at it, why? It's just the sixth head. It's a different head, it looks different, but this time it, he realizes it's exactly the same as the sixth head, only it's been healed, you see? And he gazes at this and he wonders. Can you see from our little chart of uh, the seven empires, can you see which it is? Here it is, number six is the one that was wounded. Number six here, which was a fantastic empire, came to a disastrous end in 476 AD. It had declined over many, many years, but all of a sudden the invasion of the Vandals and the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and all the other Goths who came in from the steppes of Central Asia, they rushed down into Rome and they finally overthrew Rome. It was carnage, it was the most dreadful carnage. They rushed and destroyed the whole empire. They had a king who was a young king on the throne. They'd named him Romulus Augustulus. That was his name. Romulus founded Rome, by the way, and Augustulus was the first of the emperors. So they thought, well, this is the grand title we'll give him. He didn't last very long. They came in and a certain man called Odovaca, who we've met before, that's E-R at the end. Odovaca, O-D-A-V-A-C-E-R. Some people miss out the V. He was the man. He rushed in. He deposed Romulus Augustulus, and it was the end of the Roman Empire. And this empire suddenly collapsed into history. The others just tended to peter out, you know. This one suddenly collapsed. And as he looks, the seventh head comes up again. And when the seventh head comes up, why? It's just Rome again. How amazing. Beloved, what's this mean for us? The Roman Empire is coming back to the earth. People think it's gone. Historians talk of it in the past tense. It hasn't gone, you know. Satan's about to give it more life. And the moment the church is gone, the Roman Empire is going to rise again from the ashes of death. 
The seventh head is the sixth head, which has been mortally wounded, but revived. And that's why the official name given to the seventh and last empire is the revived, R-E-V-I-V-E-D, the revived Roman Empire. Right, now that's the situation as far as uh, Revelation 13 is concerned. How do we know we're right? Well, fortunately, we've got Romans 17 to support us. It's lovely the way these all uh, move in together. Uh, turn to Revelation 17, right? And we'll go down to verse 9. Now, there is a slight correction in the text to be made, which is unfortunate. Verse 9 and verse 10... Uh, I'll tell you the correction. In verse 10 in the King James Version, it says, and there are seven kings. There's no word there. Cut out the word T-H-E-R-E. -E. Remove it. It just says, and are seven kings. Now, let's read it through. Uh, it's amazing the difference that one little word like that makes, you know. Verse 9, and here is the mind which has wisdom. And it's talking about a beast. Uh, again, here, the same beast with seven heads, and ten horns, and look what it says. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and are seven kings. The woman here does not affect us. She is Mystery Babylon. She's the spirit of evilness as far as uh, the future is concerned. We'll be dealing with her later on in the series. But here it says, the seven heads equal seven mountains, which equal seven kings. Right? Kings or, again, kingdoms. It's the same word. We'll see why it's, they refer to seven mountains in just a moment. It's very clever. Right? We'll refer to that in just a moment. Now, verse 10. Here is John, and the year is 95 AD. And the interpreting one says to him, Now, about these heads, which are seven kings or seven kingdoms. Look what he says about them. Five are fallen. In other words, as far as you are concerned in history, John, in 95 AD, five of these heads have already gone. Well, can we count up and see that five have gone? Has Egypt gone? Yes, Egypt's gone. Assyria? Yes. Babylon? Yes. Medo-Persia? Yes. Greece? Yes. Five. They've gone. All right? So we're on the right, right tack. All right, five have gone. Then it goes on and says this. Five have fallen. One is, which one is that? That's Rome. Rome is, in 95 AD, Rome is. And then it says, and the other is not yet come. Or we could say, and one is yet to come. That's it. Which is that? That is the revived Roman Empire of the Tribulation. So as John was sitting there, five of these empires have passed. One was in existence when he was there, and one was yet to come. Now we've located it absolutely right. And uh, then it goes on, and it says this. And when he cometh, when the seventh empire, which we call the revived Roman Empire, comes, he must continue a short space. And the reason it's put like that is this. Egypt lasted a long time. Assyria lasted a long time. Babylon was a bit shorter. You see, Babylon only lasted, well, officially in its main form, only about 60 or 70 or 75 years. No, I think it was 612 to 6, 
638 or 636, something like that. Um, Medo-Persia lasted a long time. Greece lasted a long time. But when the seventh one comes, it will only last a short time. How long is the seventh one going to last? Well, seven years, which is absolutely minute. Well, it's right. Good. So the seventh one, which is the revived Roman Empire, lasts seven years. Why is it then that in verse 9 it says these seven heads are seven mountains, which are seven kings? Well, there's one city in the world which is called the city on seven hills. And it's the city of Rome. And what it shows us is this. Here is the situation in the tribulation. Rome will be dominant in the tribulation. And not just the Roman Empire in a new form. Do you know it's going to be based at Rome again in Italy? Rome is going to come into its own. Today, it seems incredible. With all the troubles, the worse inflation than we've got, worse unemployment than we've got, and all the rest, the terrible social problems, Rome is going to dominate again, and it will be literal Rome. The center of this new Roman Empire is going to be the city of Rome. We're going to see amazing things happen. We're going to see part of it, and then we're going to see the rest from heaven. Hallelujah. All right, now can you see, that's the reason. All right, so the seventh empire is the revived Roman, Roman Empire. Now let's see if we can develop things just a bit more. Go back to Revelation 13, verse 3 and 4. Revelation 13, verse 3 and 4. And let's see what happens when this uh, beast comes out. This seventh empire is the fullness of all the other empires that have gone before. Right? If it's got all the power that they've all had. The end of verse 3, And all the world wondered after the beast. They are all amazed by it, and they are, they are all really enamored by this beast. They think it's fabulous what's happened. And verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. Who is this dragon that gave power to the beast? The answer is found in Revelation 12, verse, verse uh, 9, where it says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. And Satan is the one who is behind the beast and the power system that exists in the tribulation. He is the one behind the politics of the tribulation. They worship the beast, too, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? All right, now that's the beast. Now let's go back to Daniel 7, and let's see the composition of the beast, because now we can see the details. Now we know it's definitely future. Let's go back to Daniel 7 and see it. Daniel 7, and let's read verse 24 and 25 again. Now, which is the head that has the ten horns? The last head does, the seventh head. So on the seventh head, you've got ten horns. And what does it say in verse 24? And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And here you find that when the revived Roman Empire comes up, it is formed from an alliance of ten kingdoms. With their leaders, of course, they might be literal kings, they might not be literal kings. Things change so rapidly, it's very hard to see exactly what's going to happen. Right? But an alliance is made between ten kingdoms. These are Mediterranean nations. 
They come together, once the church is raptured, they come together and they start forming an alliance. As soon as they formed an alliance, another character comes onto the scene. This is the beginning of the tribulation. And look what it says. And another shall arise after them. He shall be diverse from the first. Diverse, why? Because this man who comes is an international figure. You'll notice in the world, we're beginning to see a few international figures coming out. Kissinger was one. This man is going to belong to a nation, but he's going to be an internationalist. And as soon as they form together, he's going to come in, and he's going to t take control of the confederation of ten nations. You see? And what's it say? He rises, and he shall be diverse from the first, he shall subdue three of the kings. As soon as these ten nations come into alliance and the, this man rises, three of them don't like him. And three of them say, no, we don't want him to be the overall dictator. We don't think that's right. And what he does, he mobilizes troops. And he starts fighting against the three nations that rise up against him. And he destroys them. Do you remember last time we saw that the tribulation began with a man on a white horse? And we said it was victorious warfare. That victorious warfare is this man, who is the man of sin, going out to defeat these three kingdoms. And once he's defeated them, the kingdoms come together and they form one block, which is a new Roman Empire. And there he is. And as soon as he comes, at first, well, he appears just a political and economic leader. But after three and a half years, his true colors start showing. And he starts persecuting the Jews, and he starts persecuting believers. We'll see the details of that some other time. Now there he is, and he starts dominating. Okay, back to Revelation 13. Let's see the next. Revelation 13, 5. We'll build it up slowly from these passages. And here he is, and his true colors are now showing. Verse 5. He is the head of this empire, and so represents the empire here. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. In other words, he's anti-God, anti-Christ. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. What's forty-two months? Well, it's three and a half years. And that confirms what we saw in the book of Daniel. Here he is, he's given power specifically, anti-Christ power, as it were, from Satan for three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Well, I wonder who they are. That's the church of Jesus Christ dwelling in heaven. And he even speaks out against us. But, of course, we're out of his reach. Verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. He is permitted to martyr the saints that are on the earth. Why? Because God then avenges their death. And the, this is the thing that triggers God's reaction. And power was given him over all kindreds, and all tongues and nations. And do you see what that means? Out of the Mediterranean world comes a world empire. 
For it says here, he is given dominion over all kindreds. These are ethnic groups, all people from the same ethnic background who, who form a nation together. And tongues, all those nations that are people who speak the same language and have come together as a nation. And it says nations. These are people who may be from different ethnic backgrounds and even speak different languages, but who have decided to come together. For example, the Welsh and the English and the Scots, with the Welsh still speaking Welsh in these days. You see? And suddenly we find he suddenly becomes a world dictator. Do you realize this is the only time that Mystery Babylon achieves its aim of international government? World government breaks out in the tribulation. It doesn't last long, but this man becomes the world governor over everything. There it is. By the way, some people say, oh, but look, at the beginning of verse 7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints. Oh dear, they say, so the church is going through the tribulation. Look, it says so here, the saints are going through the tribulation. Oh dear, oh dear. No, 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 no. That's because you think the word saint only applies to the church. Beloved, it doesn't. In the Old Testament, you read it for yourself in Deuteronomy 33, 2 and 3. It actually calls the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers, saints. And in Psalm, say, 116, verse 15, it says he delights in the death of his saints. Do you see? Who's that? That's Old Testament believers. Saint does not just mean the church. It's the Old Testament believers. It also refers to the church. It also refers to the believers in the tribulation and also refers to the believers in the millennium. It's a name for a believer. Saints, a holy one, a set-apart one. All believers have been set apart. The church has been extra set apart, praise the Lord, in the body of Jesus Christ. All right, now that's the position as far as we find it. Let's then go on again to Revelation 17, and let's see the next thing. Revelation 17, verse 11, which is a very mysterious verse. Let's just see what we've seen so far. We have a new empire in the tribulation, the revived Roman Empire. We have a dictator who comes up and takes over it. And before long, this dictator forms a world empire, which is bigger than the revived Roman Empire. And look what it says, verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, that's Rome, even he is the eighth. Now what's this? We've had seven heads, and now he starts talking about an eighth head. He is the eighth. The eighth empire refers to the world empire here that forms. Isn't it amazing? This happens so rapidly. The seventh head forms, and is so successful under this, this dictator that soon everyone wants to join with him. They all start thinking, this man has the, the way of life. This is the man who's got the answers to all the world's problems. And so they start rejoicing in who this uh, dictator is. And soon he becomes the head of a world government. You see, this international figure. The eighth mentioned here is the eighth head which is the world empire. This is the height of Mystery Babylon, but it doesn't last long, as we're going to see in future weeks. He is the eighth and is of the seven. In other words, he comes out from the seven. He couldn't, the, the world empire couldn't exist without the revived Roman Empire, the seventh head, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, as we've said, which have received no kingdom as yet, 
So he says, John, don't look for ten kings. Don't look through history and say, well, from where I stand in 95 AD, can I see ten Roman emperors? People still do it today, you know, trying to locate these ten Roman emperors. They do it all the time. But John said, John was told, no, don't look, because they haven't come yet, John, he says. But, look, receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, what does that mean? What it means is one and the same hour as the beast. In other words, these ten kings have no power apart from the beast. When the beast rises, in the one and the same hour, the ten kings will also rise. Therefore, it's no point in looking for ten kings now. They're not going to rise till the beast rises. You see? And that's what that means. The word hour here does not mean they reign just for one hour and all of a sudden they go. That's not it. It's they reign for a, at the same time as the beast reigns. Their power is related entirely to the power of the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast, and these shall make war with the Lamb, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now that's what we've learned from this system. Let's try and bring it all together, right? And let's see, uh, spell it out step by step. Once the rapture of the church has, has begun, an alliance forms of ten nations. These are Mediterranean nations. They come into alliance together. As soon as they've formed, a man comes up, uh, up who's an international figure, and he says, oh, I'm going to be the leader of this uh, confederation of nations. As soon as he declares himself to be the leader, three of the nations object to it. And so a, a war breaks out at the beginning of the tribulation, and these three nations are destroyed. And this man becomes the leader of the new Roman Empire. That continues for a time, but then people around the world begin to notice how prosperous this Roman Empire is. And soon they want to start joining. And so eventually the whole world joins, and they all declare this man will be the leader of the world. And this man, who we call the man of sin, puts himself up as the dictator of the whole world system. The whole world is under his control. All right? And there he is, ruling. For three and a half years, he seems to be a philanthropist. He seems to have the answer to all the world's problems, famine, uh, warfare, everything seems to come right under him. But suddenly, halfway through the tribulation, suddenly he turns against the Jews, he turns against believers, and then the most terrible persecution breaks out, as far as uh, the truth is concerned. And this man then begins to war, not just against the saints, but against God himself. And for three and a half years, you find the most dreadful situation on the face of this earth. At the end of it, the Lord himself returns and destroys the beast and destroys uh, the man of sin. Now that is the political situation that we are going to find in the tribulation. Is there any way that we can estimate which are the ten kingdoms which are going to be involved on the earth? The trouble is with us, you know, we're so short-sighted, we don't, can't think outside our own times, you know. So everyone thinks, oh, the common market. Beloved, the common market is not the revived Roman Empire. The common market is but a little thing to get us excited to know that God's purposes are coming to pass. Everyone says, oh, there are nine so far, and Spain's going to join, and that's the tenth. But they don't read that Greece is going to join, which is the eleventh. And then others are going to join, which are the twelfth. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. 
things are going to change dynamically, as we will see when we study Russia. And out of this will come the revived Roman Empire. Can we estimate which countries? Yes, I think we can make some form of quick estimate. If you see that the tribulation is the time of judgment upon the Mediterranean world which put Jesus Christ to death, it is likely that the Mediterranean world will have a similar configuration to the world at the time of Jesus. The time of Jesus in AD 33, Britain was not in the Roman Empire, so Britain won't be in the new revived Roman Empire. Nor will Belgium, nor will the Netherlands, nor probably will, will Denmark won't, and nor probably will northern Germany. But the following nations will be represented, right? It's not quite as easy as this, there are complications, but this is to sort of shake us out of our present political mind. That I would estimate the following countries will be represented. I would estimate that Spain will be in, France will be in, Italy will be in, Yugoslavia will be in, which is a surprise, Albania, Greece, Bulgaria, Turkey, Syria, um, and then I think Egypt and parts of North Africa. Now, of course, they'll have different, don't count up to 10 there, there are more than 10. The borders will change because of what is going to occur in the next few years, right? But these are the nations that will be represented at that time if it is seen as a judgment on the nations that put Jesus Christ to death and on the Roman Empire of that day. This is the type of thing we should think about. It's not clear. People will have to wait until it actually comes. All we know is this. The day is coming when Rome is rising again. When it happens, the historians and the world are going to be absolutely amazed. Beloved, now we should start looking for the signs of what will surely come to pass. Praise God. Next time, we're going to study the Satanic Trinity and look at the characters who are around in the tribulation. God bless you all. Amen.